Welcome to our little podcast that we call If You've Come This Far. I'm Chris Lozier, and I get to be here and do this with my friend, Sean Emerson. Sean, uh, what, what are we doing here with this podcast? So, Chris, I think what we said, we started this thing because we were having conversations with each other, and we thought it might be even more interesting to add uh, other people in the conversation. And so we get interesting people to come and hang out with us. No doubt that there are people more interesting than you and me. Um, who uh, who did we convince to join our conversation today? So Alexa James will be joining us uh, today on this episode. Uh, Alexa is the CEO of NAMI Chicago, National Alliance uh, for Mental Illness. Uh, she's also a special liaison to the Chicago Police Department. Um, smart, interesting, fun woman who uh, who has hung out with us before at Men Living and uh, I think we can call her a friend of the organization. Right. Yeah. And no doubt that like mental illness is a something we talk about a lot in, in, in living and certainly something that's a hot topic um, these days. So um, couldn't be a better time for this for this conversation. I'm looking forward to it. You're drinking wine. Well, I thought you I, I thought you would be. I will. All right. <laughs> do you, do, should we start the, the the podcast interview by you going to pour a, a glass of wine? A hundred percent. Okay. Do it. Okay. All right. Part of me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> See, I can't. I can't start now. I, I I need to hold off for another hour and a half before I have a drink. Why? Oh, when you get a you're pre-gaming for your dinner, as the kids say. Uh, oh, is there this, you is go. Is this podcast uh, only audio? Yes, yes, yes. Great. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have no meaning about that. Neither do we, so it's we're all in the same boat. Sean, can I you t- tell me what kind of fancy California wine you're drinking? It's not fancy. Well, it's bread and butter. Have you had it before, Chardonnay? You know, I feel medium about Chardonnay because I think it tastes buttery. Mm-hmm. Oh, I kind of like that. Yeah, yeah okay, so, so good. So uh, I'm, I'm going to have a solve. Yeah. Yeah. The ladies up, my ladies upstairs, that's what they prefer. That's what my ladies prefer too. I feel yeah. like Chardonnay is a little out of favor these days. I mean, maybe you're just a, a retrendsetter, Sean. Well, if you care about other people and what they think, then Fair yeah, point. that might, that might impact what you drink. Fair point. Chris. <laughs> we could bring Chardonnay back. It's kind of like what happened to Merlot after Sideways. You know, yeah, yes. sure. I, I feel like that. that's what's happening in a Chardonnay. But if people knew Sean Emerson drank Chardonnay, well, the the good news is it probably at least sixty people will know after. <laughs> podcast, so <laughs> here we go. <laughs> All right, so so here's the first question. Well, we're already talking about it, but Dimmy and I've already said this before. Dimmy is amazing, right? Yeah. And and. I judge, I don't know how you would manage your life without her, but I know. And so you've got a bunch of stuff after us. Why are you even spending time with us? Oh God, such a good question. How much time do we have? (laughs) I, (laughs) this is what's amazing about you, Sean. And I don't, we've never even been in physically in the same room. Correct. Correct. When I am with you and your crew and Chris is fabulous as well. I, I've, no matter what is going on in my life, I feel so good. You okay. are just like an imbat, like honestly, without being hokey, like I'm this, it's just nice to be in a space with people, particularly where I feel like a lot of my days performing. Um, 
where I get to be. And that is celebrated by your people. It's just so good. It's so warm. We're glad. I'm glad you feel that way. But when you say like most of your day you're performing, that, that kind of sucks. What I mean, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So I've been really digging into this issue. (laughs) Okay. Because I always thought I was vulnerable all the time. I thought that that's why I could connect with community. What I'm learning is transparency and feeling the pulse and responding to your audience is not vulnerability. Um, And so I feel like I've been doing more of that. Like, what do people need? How do I keep their attention? It's probably from my childhood. We can talk about that later. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and so I feel tired a lot and I listened to this amazing, um, Brene Brown podcast with Dr. Pippa, I'll, I'll find her last name. And she talks about what happens to you and Vivek Murthy, Murthy talks about this too, in his loneliness conversation, Mm -hmm. what happens to you when you're not your authentic self most of the time and why you feel so tired. Mm -hmm. And so I've been paying a lot of attention to that and kind of going away from this, like idea that I have to be something publicly or like with my team um, that doesn't really feel um, authentic. And when I was doing that, I was not being vulnerable. And so I actually wasn't making meaningful connection, which is why I think I was feeling so tired. Mm. So I have, uh, for years, I've been pounding the drum about this last lecture that uh, an old professor of mine gave I'll share it with you later. We're trying to get him on the podcast. Uh, but in it, he talks about integrity um, as the quality, not not in, in the sense of honesty, but in the quality uh, or the sense of showing up as the same person with every audience, you know? Uh, so in other words, sort of being your authentic mm-hmm. self. So he talks about at your funeral, your wife meets your dog walker, meets your, your, your doctor, meets your college professor. And it turns out they all knew the same person. Um, right. And so I, I think that's uh, sort of like one of my mantras recently. And it occurs to me as you talk about your tiredness, I feel like it takes a, a more energy to have to decide and then put on sort of do a different thing with different audiences. Do you think that's true? Well, first of all, I think that your old professor needs a dimmy in his life if you can't seem to get him on the podcast. You know, <laughs> Miami assistant. Um Yeah. I mean, I think it's less, I think it's less, um, obvious than that. I wouldn't say that the police officer that I see on the corner and the superintendent and my team and the mayor would be at a funeral and think of us, think of myself as different people. I think what happens is I am so anxious about losing the ability for them to stay, to feel connected to wellness and our, and like our work or what we're trying to like infuse that I'm hypersensitive to where they are all the time, as opposed to like putting my, where I'm at as a priority. I don't even know what that would look like actually. Can can you tell us more about your job right now? So I, I know that NAMI and again, maybe you could even set the record straight in terms of NAMI Chicago's relationship to national NAMI. I, I, I think you told me at one point, but I don't remember exactly. But I know that there is a certainly um, there's sort of a service provider role. Uh, there's also a public awareness role. Um, so maybe like, why are you talking to police officers on the corner? Awesome. <laughs> That's a really good question. I have actually a very funny story about two that were in my home the other night. Um, 
they come to me now. Um, so NAMI Chicago is an, is an advocacy organization and we're mon- one of many. Um, I mean, I certainly think that NAMI Chicago is incredibly special. Uh, and, and many of the affiliates, I think there's like 800 at this point, share a very similar mission that we advocate for a more just and robust mental health system while supporting those impacted, which are family members, individuals themselves and professionals. We are autonomous from the national organization that is doing a lot of federal policy work and um, quality control over program that is extended out through different NAMI affiliates. We're autonomous because we have our own board, our own financials, et cetera. And we've also responded really specifically to the needs of Chicago, which are that our mental health system is very much misunderstood to be a crisis system that is held by first responder community. So for 15 years, we've been working with the police department specifically, but other law enforcement, other parts of the emergency response system to enhance their understanding and provide them real tangible tools as well as changing policies so that folks with mental illness aren't criminalized. And then on the other side of that, really, I think powerfully trying to partner and convene um, and leverage other, other people in this good work to try to reform a system that was never broken. It was never that it just was never built correctly. It was built on the backs of people that we wanted to go away, you know, um, that we didn't want to be a part of a healthcare system that had been stigmatized for many years. So our work is very robust. We have about 60 employees. Um, and our partnership with the police department to answer your specific question we've been training them for years and years and we've really built a beautiful rapport with them. We are not a one and done training. We think of our education programs as perspective shifting, um, which is why I think we have such intimate connection. And about a year ago, after yet another horrible, tragic loss of life, um, the superintendent, David Brown, asked me to come in and act, me, NAMI, come in and act as a senior advisor to wellness for the Chicago Police Department. So this is not police diversion exercise. This is like, how do we create a comprehensive strategy around officer wellness, which I have found, it's been a fascinating year um, in many, many ways. Um, so that's where I spend half my time, outside of NAMI. Am I oversimplifying? So um, I'm like a child when it comes compared to you when it comes to even conversing about mental health and mental wellness. Um, so if I say some dumb things along the way, forgive me. But um, is it do you, do we talk ever about just like the breakdown in in mental health care between preventive and corrective? Uh, that's such a good question. Do we talk about it? Y- yeah. Um, God, that's such a good question. Chris, you've been like, it's like you've been in our conversations, mm-hmm. right? So what is, I, I guess I would ask you when I say to you both, when I, what is prevention of mental health conditions? What's, what's, what would prevent, what, what do you think of immediately? Like what comes to your mind? Uh, I, uh, well, so I, let me, I'll go first, but then Sean weigh in here. Um, I think of, um, sort of self-care, some of it being physical self-care even, like, um, you know, uh, uh, sleep enough, eat well, exercise, and that probably would help. Um, and then I think about um, being able to ask for help almost. So mm-hmm. maybe that's a really falls somewhere in between preventive and corrective. I'm not sure. Those are things that come to my mind first. Sean, what would you say? Yeah, I would say a practice that helps with self-awareness. Um, 
would be the number one thing. Because I, you know, and I mentioned this earlier when we were, when I, when I made the joke about, you know, caring about what other people think, it just seems like so much of problems yeah. generate from us caring about so much what other people think that it's creates this anxiety and depression and, Hmm. And even loneliness because we don't want to expose ourselves because how, how people might react to that. So that's where I would go. So this is what's so, I'm so, I'm actually glad that we flipped that for a second because here's what's so interesting. Also, amen, we've come a long way just because I mean, you also, you guys have like so much availability in your brains to understand this comprehensive health, health issue. Um, so that's kudos to you. I, I wonder if we asked anyone this question, what they would come up with, but, but Chris, I'll start with you. What you talked about, like this, this idea of like physical wellness. Absolutely. Like there was separation between physical health and mental health forever, forever. I mean, Patrick Kennedy really made the, the quote, like check up from the neck up, um, much more popular that we're doing so much about our physical health and prevention that we don't think about our mental health. So that's, that's huge. And then you said the ability to have insight, both of you, that we're, that we need something potentially. That's a self-efficacy piece. So here, this is so interesting because I've actually flip-flopped um, and I'll try not to be long-winded. When I think about prevention, I think about an entire community that is woke enough to understand that our mental health dictates our level of relationships, our functioning, our ability to engage in the world. And there are systems in place that make it much more difficult for, for certain people to access that type of resource. And I, you, when, um, when Anthony Bourdain died and Kate Spade died in that month, both of suicide, I remember pushing out a letter that really talked about this concept that we say to people all the time, you're not alone, call this number. You're not alone, reach out. And we were like, and when you can't get out of bed and you're feeling so bad, it's really about us as, as, as community to be able to reach out to you and say, I'm noticing this is different. Okay. And now I'm saying that's important, but also like you guys said, we have to be able to say in ourselves, I'm feeling off. Like I woke up with back pain today. So maybe I won't do a hard hit class. Not I wake up feeling lonely, which means that's my body's way of saying I'm hungry for connection. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's both. So prevention is having enough mental health literacy that you can even identify those feelings with you or other people having the authentic and healthy relationships to be able to say to somebody, I'm noticing this and it not be felt like a criticism or I'm not performing. I'm not strong enough. Understanding that none of us do this alone and we shouldn't. And we keep thinking like, I can, like, I can deal with this. I can just keep going. I can just keep trucking along. It's, it's, it's a ridiculous sense of strength that is irrelevant and not helpful. And then there's this physical wellness component that's incredibly helpful um, in terms of being able to be clear, having enough sleep. We actually don't have access to our insight if we're tired or burnt out. It's one of the symptoms that immediately goes away. And the other thing is the ability to be, to engage in a healthy coping resource, right? So as we sit here, I wish I could take a picture of my the, 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 the beverage tray that I have in front of me, which is water, coffee, and wine. You know, we have to really be thoughtful about do we have access to healthy, healthy coping strategies? Because when we don't feel well, when we're tired, when we're undernourished, blah, 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 we usually reach for things that actually don't serve us. And when we get really low and depressed past the prevention point, we actually immediately stop using our healthy coping strategies and start going into unhealthy coping strategies. So the conversation around prevention is so 
I feel like it's simple and it's complicated because how do you fund that? And we continue to lean into government to set the tone for what we want this to look like. And the challenge with that is government is typically changing every four years and everyone has a lot of fiefdom. So they want to own what that means when we talk about prevention. It's difficult to measure Um, right? If early prevention and intervention for wellness Mm -hmm. works because the environment is so complicated and can trigger so many things that prevention can't mitigate. Um, And so we focus on treatment and we don't focus on treatment, right? We focus on crisis intervention. Mm -hmm. We focus, we don't even focus on the postvention, what happens after that awful period. Um, And that's something that we, I tell my leadership team to use as their frame all the time what's prevention, what's intervention, and what's postvention. And I think the postvention, if it's done well, becomes the prevention piece because you start to learn these new behaviors. Uh, so um, just a quick step back. I, my, because I'm an engineer, I was going with preventive and corrective. And I like your words better. Um, and I also want to ask a question about this notion of, of correction in, in mental health. Like, um, I, you know, in my family, we're, we're you know, we're, we're dealing with some mental health issues of eating, disordered eating and, uh, anxiety and depression. And, um, and I, you know, with both of those or all three of those, I don't know how we count those, but, um, uh, you know, I, I've heard people tell me, look, I mean, this could be a lifelong battle. Right. And so maybe it's, maybe I'm wrong to even be tossing the word corrective around, I actually kind of like it. I mean, corrective does indicate that you're coming from the space of a norm that you're trying to get back to. Mm-hmm. So it, it does it does take away the opportunity that I actually think through adversity, we, we can come out much better on the other side, even hanging on to some of those maladaptive behaviors. Mm-hmm. We're actually seeing a huge increase in eating disorders, huge post-pandemic, especially with kiddos and um, anxiety and depression. But I do think that there's, I think what, what I'm hearing when you say corrective is how do we get, when, when things start to happen that become maladaptive or just become problematic, how do you get in there early enough? You know, I had some eating issues as a kid and I remember like throwing up after I ate one time and it was, for me, it was attention seeking. I wanted my mom to pay attention. And I remember she, and so I like, this is so gross, but I remember like not being clean in my like, you know, purging and whatever. And I remember my mom saying to me, if you do that again, I'm grounding you. That was not corrective, Right. Right. But like, what would have been a different interaction? I have never told that story, by the way. What would have been a different interaction if there would have been a conversation about that and there was warmth and love and people held you during a time when you were unsteady? Mm-hmm. That I think is the corrective or, or medication or whatever. Right. It doesn't sure. have to be parental involvement, but I like that. Well, um, <clears throat> so most people who will find themselves listening to this know that Sean and I are, are part of a men's group. And so we work with men and um, this idea of, of ability to ask for help. I, I feel like it's at least two parts, right? It's like knowing that there's help out there, but then being back to how we opened this podcast about being vulnerable enough to ask for help. I, I, I think it's safe to say that men historically um, have, have lacked that vulnerability piece more than women. I'm curious about police. 
because I feel mm-hmm. like, and I was in the military, so um, yeah. so I wonder if there is, if, if you're dealing with a particularly hard nut to crack uh, in terms of equipping police officers to um, to be able to ask for help. Well, I, 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 I would ask you too. I mean, I think that what we have done wrong, so, so the police are not military, right? But we treat them as though they are. Mm-hmm. We treat them like, especially in Chicago, we treat them like numbers. We move them around all the time without even really acknowledging, almost like, like that's, you know, to hear your, but also they don't often have the same leader. And we basically historically have taught them that vulnerability is really problematic, that it's not a positive tool. Because if you're too vulnerable, if you demonstrate too much empathy, which is required, you have to have vulnerability to be have empathy, um, then you are not going to survive the job. And so we're instilling in men and women early on that if you show heart and compassion, you won't be able to do this because we we think that strength is shutting down. Mm-hmm. I think the military, and obviously you correct me if I'm wrong, has done a much better job of, of shifting that, that we have to understand what vulnerability means and how to utilize it and then how to decompress and process. So I, I with police, it's interesting because they are... Um, we're, when we talk about empathy with them, um, when we talk about like getting in that hole with people who are in crisis, sometimes they, they feel really overwhelmed at what that means to them in terms of how much emotion, what emotional toll that will take. But they are already demonstrating vulnerability because they, when they have access to us, they are constantly sharing with us what is broken and what isn't working, what doesn't feel good in the department. And so what we're trying to do, and they are very, very clear about what doesn't make them feel good all the time. And so we're trying to figure out how they can translate that behavior and that ability to communicate and that like deep resentment and angst into what's going on with people when they're showing up for them. We're trying to show them the parallel. I mean, the truth is police, and I'm sure that this is a national, could be a national statement during this time in 2021, it's incredibly complicated and painful and they are working out of scope. They feel powerless, which I can imagine can be a completely offensive statement to make, but they actually do because they don't feel like they have any control over their work or they don't completely understand the policies that are rapidly changing. So they feel paralyzed. So if don't feel, they don't feel like they have the resources that they need and they don't feel like they're seen or heard. This is completely the same reflection that we're hearing from communities in which they have um, such poor relationships with. So we're trying to pull like very like r- rational exercises with them to demonstrate how it could be meaningful for them to get into that space and have them practice empathy. It's a really overwhelming experience for them when we do that with them. And they often come up to us with very highly exposed, um, but very willing and very interested in help seeking. So I think that's because of the way in which we hold them. I think when you just tell people to do stuff and leave them without that commitment, it's actually more traumatizing. I've said to the superintendent many times, turning away from trauma is worse than just ignoring the fact that they're hurting um, because you've just punished their ability to be vulnerable in front of you. But I don't know. I mean, did, did they process how long ago were you in, were you in service? Oh, geez. Uh, uh, I got out in 98. So, and I was in the submarine community, which is probably different than everything else. But um, I, I definitely, I think it's safe to say that we weren't doing a good job of any of that in the nineties. 
um, and I hope that we're doing a better job now. It's just a really interesting, um, I, I feel like this is a, a show that you should ultimately end up taking on the road because there's so many people that need this, this sort of service that you're, you're, you're providing, not just police officers, but. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm listening to the two of you and, and what's, what I keep coming back to, and Alexa, you gave some stats as it relates to the, as you call them, the kiddos. And I think even before the pandemic, the numbers on anxiety, depression, eating disorders were crazy, um, crazy high. And, and so, I mean, I mean, this all kind of comes back to, I mean, we're talking about police, we're talking about adults. Where are we at with, with our kids? And I think it starts from, from the standpoint, I mean, as they enter the school system and, and um, our culture and society and, and, and the pressures that are there, how do we have any, how do we have any impact on, on that? Um, yeah. Because it's, I, I mean, it starts when you're, when you're young, right? Yeah. To a certain I, mean, extent. I mean, I don't want to, I'm, I, I think it was easier for us. I think, I think they have so much exposure to stuff that like, and I'm not an overprotective parent. I mean, I have a four and an almost seven year old, like we talk real shit, you know, but mm-hmm. like the, the exposure that they have to stuff that we don't even know right. is too, I just don't think they're ready to consume it. Yeah. Well, uh, and you said, you know, easier for us. But I think you were 40 under 40 at the end of last year. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Thank you for including us. Us. Yeah. You know when you asked me at the beginning shit. why I like to be with you guys. The only time I feel young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love it. Oh yeah. Thanks. I think this, I think we're done here. Yeah, goodbye. I think think that the school stuff was really, so I don't think, so I actually asked a a woman who runs one of our, um, she's high in leadership at a a big Chicago children's hospital, you can guess. And um, I said, I said, this is a stupid question to ask, especially as like the CEO of NAMI, but why, why is the acuity of these kids 15, 16 months in so high. And she said, it wasn't COVID that caused it. It was that there are this in her, in her opinion, that there are already so many underlying anxieties and so much exposure and the social media and stuff. It got really out of balance when schools shut down and when their ability to develop competencies every day changed and social interaction changed. Everything was about how do you, how are you seen at this point? And a lot of it was social media competition and, Mm -hmm. you know, this TikTok and blah, blah, blah. Also, I think that um, not everyone's family is super healthy. Mm-hmm. And parents were also feeling a tremendous amount of pressure and stress. And when we have parents who are feeling that way, it trickles down and, and, and young people feel it. Services were interrupted because we have continued to think of school as a place where all things should be delivered. And so when that was interrupted, I mean, you can do social work like via telehealth, but the, not everybody has like a single family home where the kid has their own computer and can go into their room and have like, you know, there wasn't privacy. Um, so I do, I think that's right. I think this is a really strong demonstration of how environment can absolutely amplify stuff that may have been sitting there that could have probably been corrected throughout, but it was just too much all at once. Yeah. 
I am curious. You brought it up. Do you, do you have an opinion on the the apps? Uh, I'm going to call them the the wellness apps or or um, telehealth apps as relates to therapy. I mean, there's a there's a seems like there's a million of them. Plenty of people getting tons of money to build them. Do you have Do you have a? I mean, it sounds like you have an opinion. Uh, <laughs> well, you're the you're, you're the expert, and I asked you first. So. So that's true. That's true. Yeah. I don't think anything replaces personally one on one. Yeah, okay. I mean, um, and we're doing a podcast, and we're on video, so we can see each other because you just can't have the same kind of conversation when you're just over the phone. Agreed. I think there's connection that happens when you're physically together. It's what I'm telling my team and trying to convince them to come back to the office. Um, I do think any ability that we have to, to leverage like IT solutions to continue to help people is not harmful at all. And I do think we have to make sure that legislatively insurance companies have the ability to continue to be reimbursed for telehealth services. I think some of the apps are great. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just gifted the Calm app to everybody in my, on my team mm-hmm. um, just as an opportunity to make sure that we are just starting to practice this app opportunity to find space. Breathwork really does work for everybody. If you learn how to do it, meditation and mindfulness. Now, I don't do this. I can't, and I, I say I can't because I haven't worked hard at it, but mindfulness is really the key here, right? Because it's really about shifting our perspective and really helping to, to mitigate the anxiety that can become un, unrealistic. So we've liked calm a lot. Um, we do a lot of work with the yoga for first responder app and program for first responders, What's great, and Chris, you should check it out. What's what's cool about that is that it's peer-based, right? So they they would rather do yoga with a firefighter than with like, you know, a fancy yogi from downtown Chicago. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I mean, connect that that helps with connection. I do think that it's not a replacement. Mm-hmm. So so uh I, yeah, I, I don't know if I've heard anyone willing to pick that fight with you. Like it's it's not as good. And 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 I work in the teacher world now, and so Teaching virtually is, in, in almost all cases, is not as good as being able to sit down with a student. But there's also a real shortage of teachers and therapists. And so when you sort of weigh the return of maybe 70% as good of uh, therapy with just being able to meet demand. I mean, I know so many parents mm-hmm. who have kids who who they for whom they can't find a therapist. Like, what what do we do about what do we do about that? I know. Well, there's also some really bad therapists who are right, doing that. Sure, yeah. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I mean, that's the truth that there's, and then that breeds to this mistrust, the accountability that we have for all other work, like types of, we need to also have in the mental health space. Um, workforce is a huge issue that we talk about a lot. And I think that it is really important to have licensed clinicians. I mean, there's something that you can do with a clinician in a session that somebody without that skill set just doesn't, won't be able to dig into in a way that's safe. Uh And I think that we need to really focus on peer support, workforce wellness and workforce development. So for example, we had, we, we get calls on our helpline, obviously. And, um, and we got a call from a a mom, well-resourced private insurance, um, kiddo had their first psychotic break, really disruptive to the family system, shame, all this stuff, right? We connected, once we got the kid and the young person into treatment and was stabilized, we connected them with, uh, he wasn't willing. He was like, I'm fine, I'm fine, because it was the first time, right? Like good looking 18 year old kid. So we connected him with one of our younger peer support um, members. 
And then they're, they're able to have a real conversation where hope is a part of the conversation. I've been where you are. It's really hard. And then with mom, we hooked mom up with a parent who had also experienced this 10 years ago. So they can have a conversation. So now they're both healing through lived experiences that are similar. And the clinician is at the center kind of playing air traffic control. That I think can be as healing, if not more, and certainly a very important layer to the scaffolding that has to happen when we're talking about recovery plans. And that part is disjointed in our country. And we, NAMI, feel a real responsibility to start convening, like what does a center of best practice look like to, to create this workforce? Um, which needs a very different level of supervision and support, as you can imagine, because they're also living with the same challenges we're putting them in front of other people for. So um, we have like five psychiatrists for kids in the state of Illinois. I mean, it's just it's, mm, wow. it's just incredible. Well, yeah. who, what organization is pushing this at the university level, right? Uh, like, because we do this with teachers, like we need to we need more teachers for sure. But to your point, we need better prepared teachers who are going to stay in the classroom longer. Um, like what is it? NAMI national NAMI who is pushing this or what? God, such a good question. So yeah, it's interesting that you say that about teachers though, because what, can I, we talk about that for a second? Cause sure. I know we've asked a lot of teachers, like social, emotional learning. You not only have to teach arithmetic. I just said that now I've aged. <laughs> now I'm not 40. Now I'm over 40. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was good. It was my gateway word. Um, you have to teach geometry and make sure that this person feels held and safe. Like, right. So, so we're also like asking, asking these people to do more and not asking if they actually want to, if like, that's why they got into this space. Um, <laughs> So that's interesting. And I think we need to coordinate that. What is this? We need to like a full skill set of people who are in front of other humans. Yeah. You know, like can can this, what, it, what is like the litmus test here and how many more clinicians do we need to come by to come through in terms of like the university level? Um, not a lot of people, a lot of people, we hemorrhaged a ton of clinicians during Ronner's administration because we had a budget impasse. And so uh, providers that were recruiting entry-level clinicians that would work for, you know, $35,000 a year were leaving the state because they weren't, there was no reimbursement. They weren't getting paid. So we've lost a lot of clinicians that way. And a lot of, we're just talking about that, this issue actually with the department of public health, a lot of clinicians who become licensed, they do two years in like community mental health and they get licensed. They really want to do private practice, which is a very different clientele than what we're looking for. You know, you can like demonstrate your own creative, create creativity, individualistic, like, you know, way of working, your clientele is far more stable typically um, in terms of their mental health needs. And so what we really need in workforce is higher reimbursement rates for Medicaid. So we can have the best clinicians also supporting those who are experiencing higher levels of systemic racism, poverty, um, trauma, et cetera. Um, that's a huge issue. I don't know how at the university level and at Chicago, we have amazing social work programs, what they're doing around that. Um, and if they're actually bringing in more stakeholders for them to engage and to understand this multidisciplinary teams, teachers, blah, 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 how everybody has to work together. That's not a strong suit in the healthcare system, you know, this mm -hmm. care coordination. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, everything from the data in healthcare to this sort of supply and demand equation. It's, I, I yeah. get it. Um, Sean, I feel like I'm stealing too much airtime, oh, sucking up too much oxygen here, but um, I have to go back. So, Alexa, mm -hmm. your kids are too young to be avid social media 
people, or if, if they're social media people at all. Sean, your kids are, are not, are no longer in your house, right? So you don't see this, but my kids are in the sweet spot of social media. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would probably have pushed the children's hospital woman push back on her a little bit about COVID because even if COVID directly, the disease itself wasn't causing a rise in incidence of, of mental health issues. I do, I would guess that COVID did lead to higher usage of social media. Oh, for sure. Right. Yes, yes, yes. And right. so there is some causality there. Um, and, and like Sean and I were talking about this before we hopped on with you, but loneliness and, and, anxiety or uncertainty, which might be another way of looking at it, are not mental illnesses as far as I can tell, right? They, no one gets diagnosed with loneliness or, or anxiety, right? Or maybe I guess anxiety, they do, but, but, but th- there's, there's no better breeding ground for those two conditions than fucking watching other kids have relationships that you don't have or have the homes that you don't have. Um, and I guess like it, it I don't know what to do about that. I guess I, I, and I'm not asking you to give me the answer, um, but but uh, but we we have to do something, don't we? Yeah, I, I even think about it now with my seven year old who will say shit like, "Don't post that on Instagram," and I'm like, "Your naked ass is all over my Instagram." Picture. <laughs> um, no, but his the 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 desire to want more all the time, I think, comes from what they see. So, like, it's it feels more powerful than our best parenting practices. Yeah, you know, it, I think that's it, what's there's really no powerful. doubt it is. Yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 designed for addiction. I mean, yeah, and and you can take my you know, say my kids are out of the house, but they're as addicted as anyone. Uh huh. Are sure. you guys on social media? I'm off. Are you strong? Strong. I was in. I was in in a big way, um, and um, I, I mean, I remember sitting with my kids. They were. It was probably 2008, 2009, and they were face Facebooking, and I'm like, "Well, you haven't seen anything till you get on Twitter." And they're like, "Oh, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. You're Mister Technology." And so that was before Twitter exploded. Instagram didn't even exist then. And so I was feeding them the juice because I'm a technology guy and I believed in it. And then I saw how I was consumed by it. it, and, and, it and it was something that I didn't want to be a part of anymore. Mm. Um, and, it's, and it's hard because from a marketing standpoint, it is, it is the greatest advertising platform ever created. And so when I think about wanting to things like introduce men living to more guys to come hang out and be a part of this, I, you know, I don't want to use it, but then I'm challenged because it's so powerful. Um, what about you, Alexa? Are you, are you, uh, how much power does social media have over you? <laughs> I am off the Facebook. I mean, I think I have an account, but I, I never, ever look. It makes me feel dirty. There's something about Facebook that just makes me feel dirty. Yeah. Um, Twitter a little bit, just to, for like Chicago specific, because I don't, I don't, I really don't watch the news anymore if possible. Instagram for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm addicted. I, pro- I go on it and I don't even know I'm on it. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, my, my girls and, and my wife have been trying to, to get me on Instagram and I do feel like it's probably less poisonous, right? Like mm-hmm. just, 
They're your no. pushers. They're a pusher. Just have a little taste, Chris. It's a gateway social yeah. media. Right. Just totally. have a little taste. But there's less commentary, at least, right? There's uh, is it or maybe not? I don't even know. It's, you know, no, it's just fake. I think that that, I mean, you know, like I like posted all weekend because I have a new niece and she's perfect. So everyone should see her and that's joy. Yeah. Um, but it's like today I did a workout class and my instructor was like, let's do like a mirror picture. I mean, it's all like, yeah, right. It's poor, it's performative. Yeah. It's performative. It's like, and nobody ever posts a picture of them ugly. And then there's this, that's new trend that's happening, right? right. Chris and so it's like, this is really what a mom body looks like. But I don't want to, that don't inspire me. To me. Like, like, God bless you. I'm, like, right. I'm not going to post that of me. Right. Right. But there's just like the opportunity cost of think about the things you could be doing with that time that you're spending. I know. Right. I know. I think, so I think it's like, so I think it's an accountability. I think it's actually, I, I think that we can't fight the power that it has. And I do think it's only going to get more pervasive. I hope that it gets more positive. I think for me, it's about like, as a parent, how do we push connection over disconnection through spending so much time connecting with like people that we do not know, that we don't honor, that we, you know what I mean? Um, I don't know. Well, and from I, a I kid perspective, from a kid perspective, it's so powerful. I mean, your kids are going to, start to come into it, Alexa, that if all their friends, if it's, if it's the way that their friends connect, you're going to deny them that, or. I know. And then they're the weird kid. Yeah. They're the weird kid. And then what? I mean, they'll they'll live at home with me forever. (laughs) I ask them every day if they will. So, Uh, so, so I got, wait, I get, so I got to ask this question because it's somewhat, so we're kind of talking about this drug, social media Um, perspective on psychedelics for wellness yeah, or, okay. or just person professionally or personally or both sure. wherever you want to go with sure. that. But there's so much, I mean, there's, there's not only uh, there's laws being passed in States. Uh, there's so much money that's going into startups around um, psilocybin and MBA and some of these other yeah. drugs for, for wellness, treating wellness. Do you have a perspective on that? I, I I do a little bit. I actually, there's a new podcast I really want to listen to. If you listen to it, psychedelic something or it's all about this. Um, I, so I, read I, know, Michael, I read Michael Pollan's book. Okay. And, yeah. And so I have some perspective on where he's coming from and he's a serious guy. So yeah. 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 Serious guys. I always definitely take, take seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know very little, I, I know, I know a lot about ketamine. Does ketamine count? Sure. Yep. I think ketamine is amazing. Yeah. I think ketamine is amazing. So years ago, this guy calls, he's an anesthesiologist in Chicago. His name's Dr. Nandra. He's amazing. And he's like, come see my clinic. And I was like, this is a total Ponzi scheme or something. (laughs) So I go to his clinic in River North and we're talking and he's telling me about treating people with ketamine for like chronic anxiety, suicidality, depression, no psychotic disorders, but Mm -hmm. all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, there's no cure, right? He shows me the whole process and I'm actually really taken by it. And his data is really powerful and it's not FDA approved in this capacity, Um, especially at this time. So we start sending people there. It is curative. I'm not kidding you. Like the, I have worked with people who were 
chronically suicidal for 15 years. One woman in particular who she and I, through NAMI, we connected, we and I had a very difficult relationship. It was like almost every other day was sending me a suicide note, was very unstable mood systems. Um, she's been going for six months and I got an email from her the other day and she's a beautiful soul and really, really in a lot of pain that said, thank you for sticking with me. It was like a whole different tone. Um, I have a girlfriend who's, whose husband has PTSD from the, the war and he's been going and he has not had a hospitalization in two years. He was chronically wow. hospitalized. So, and the side effects are nothing. The worst that I've seen with ketamine is that it just, it wasn't effective for people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's incredible. I, what, what, what upsets me is why we can't, the best way to do it is through IV under sedation in clinic and mm-hmm. FDA hasn't approved that we can conspiracy theory that, mm-hmm. um, I just think it's amazing. And there's a lot of education that has to happen with psychiatrists and clinicians because people are like, no, 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 let's do this first. It's like, it's not going to hurt you. It's just expensive. Right. Right. Is the ketamine treatment something that needs to be maintained or do you eventually wean off of it? It totally depends. So I actually, I think I'm going to do it just to like do it um, and see if my anxiety reduces a little bit, because I think I could be somebody who go like one or two sessions and just feel just more level. Um, Cause it doesn't impact my like function, my anxiety. There are folks who go, who do six sessions every six months. So they maintain it. And other people who went a few times, like one guy said he, he was, um, he was suicidal for, for years after his deployment. And he said it was the first time after his first treatment where he actually felt hope. Wow. Wow. So he had to go, he, he goes regularly when some people, when they just feel low, they go in for a few treatments. So it's maintenance, but there's no negative impact on your body or your brain. Um, and there's a lot of people who are really pushing and supporting it. Like NAMI National supports it. So that has been helpful. I, I worry about like hallucin- like hallucinogenic drugs. I, I really do worry about pot, um, particularly unregulated. I do know so many people where it has interfered so much with their brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I worry about, this isn't a psychedelic drug, but I worry about alcohol. Yeah, oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a sort of uh, we kind of overlook that one a lot, don't we? Just because it's it's it seems relatively innocuous. It's it's yeah. funny because when so when my daughter ha- was going through depression and anxiety and she was diagnosed with anorexia, it was like there was this competition among the the experts on both sides. And something you touched on earlier was like the anorexics, like, well, if you don't give her a healthy body and mind, then you can't even deal with the d- depression and anxiety. Um, but but it is there's like all of these things um there's interests behind every one of them right so Mm -hmm. like ketamine i think is only approved for anesthesia at this point right correct and you can do like a nasal spray now that you can be prescribed for depression but that's but that's your point about the that's like your whole point about workforce is the, the interdisciplinary knowledge yeah um really keeps healthcare in their in their silo which I think is really, it's the same with addiction and and mental illness, right? It's like, well, let's let's get clean and then deal with your mental illness. It's like, I don't want to deal with my shit sober. Right. right. (laughs) Wow. I didn't even thought of that. Hard to deal with. And then they try to like put them together and, and everybody has their own threshold. I mean, 
everyone has their own threshold. It's why when you take away somebody's coping strategy, whether it's like healthy or not, cutting, eating, drinking, whatever, you must replace it. And why we really believe in, believe in harm reduction. You can't just say, stop doing this. You have to replace it and let people ease into that new strategy. It's never going to feel as good as numbing. I mean, that's what we have to understand. So, so what do you, you said it might help you with your anxiety. What do you do for self-care now? I work out every day. Um, I think I've mentioned this before. Like for me, it's like, I call it like a symptom reducer. It really just keeps me here. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm still so full. I need to get out. I really, I'm really trying to slow down with my kids and find a lot of joy and put my phone away. My boundaries for work, although it doesn't feel like it for you guys has changed. I just don't really do work on the weekends. That's great. Um, Cause and- I, ju- I judge what you do. No, it's just in general is hard to let go of. I mean, between both jobs, between the liaison work with the CPD and, and what you do with NAMI that it's, it's, it's hard to let go of. I don't, I mean, maybe it's because of the person, I mean, even the story you told about this woman um, because of the personal nature of it. Am I, am I, do I read that wrong? You know, no. Yeah. Uh, And it's not, I I thought for a long time I was having this like hero ego thing. I'm like, I'm not going to save the world. That's not what this is. Yeah. I think that what I've learned is I, I do frankly work in a bureaucracy and more so now with the police department. NAMI is certainly not, it's like the healthy, wonderful, like utopia, but we work within these bureaucracies. And what I've learned is when working in a bureaucracy, as all of you have experienced, even calling, you know, city workers or whatever, if, if you are not hustling so fucking hard every day, no change is going to occur. Yeah. Right. And you will still, still be slow and small. And then you have a moment to celebrate the joy and then you keep going. Mm -hmm. And so it's not sustainable, but when people say to me, like, just, you know, take it two weeks off, just don't. (laughs) And I'm like, it's not, I don't want to, I mean, it's, it's not that I also, I'm also so privileged to be in this place, but like really just, I think it's just not sustainable. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. So finding joy and also really only connecting with people truly that I think are healthy and positive. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Alexa, I know uh, I've had a lot of friends, uh, maybe including me, I'm not my friend, but but I'm, I would be lumped into this group who, who maybe didn't figure out what they wanted to do with their lives until they were like 40. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've been in this mental wellness, mental health space, I think, because I spied on you via social media on LinkedIn mm-hmm. your entire career. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, and if I'm wrong, I, I'm only slightly wrong. So you know, you've been in it for a long time. C- can you can you tell us like what's what's the background there? Like, how did you end up there? Did you know all along, etc.? He hates to be mm. slightly wrong, so just humor him and tell him that. Yeah, you tell him I'm 100 percent right. 100 percent right. Thank God. <laughs> no, I like. I think I. I. It's interesting. <clears throat> um. I am still, uh, I mean, I love NAMI. I never want to leave, but I also obviously thinking about like, what would I want to do next? It definitely, I like systems there. It's interesting to me, like reforming systems, identifying the gaps. Um, I, you know, I had a divorced parents when I was little and, um, some, you know, unhealthy attachment. And I felt very responsible for caretaking, but very resentful. So it wasn't like a warm, coddly, like Alexa's going to like do everything at six. It was, I knew it wasn't the right place, but I did it. So I think I probably just like got into a caregiving role that probably wasn't healthy. I wasn't very good at academics. Um, you know, I was like cut class and like 
eat like Ofame salads. I don't know if any of you remember Ofame in Lincoln Park. Ofame salads and be like, um, call the police and be like, there's a gang fight. You know, I went to like public schools and I was such a Lincoln Park snob. Um, I was just like, I just didn't like it really engage in school or college, but I studied psychology. And I think my only job I could get after college, not doing super well was I worked at a group home where I remember the interview. So this is youth and care DCFS wards, as we historically would call them. I remember my interview, I thought I was like, so professional. And I was like, I'm having a job interview. That's not bartending. (laughs) Um, and like not working in retail. And she was like, okay, so what happens? This is literally the question. What happens if one of our girls goes next door? Cause we were in Naperville. They took these kids from the south and west side of Chicago for them in Naperville. And what happens if they like take a bunch of, this is so weird, take a bunch of eggs and like throw them on the neighbor's garage. What do you do? And I was like, well, I would sit down and have a conversation about ownership. And, and she's like, would you clean up the eggs? And I was like, yes. Yeah. She's like, okay, you're hired. <laughs> and I was like, oh. We got our girl. <laughs> so that was, you know, like $22,000 a year driving to Naperville every day. And really I was under-trained. These kiddos had such trauma. Holy, mo- I mean, just, just like their parents relinquished parental rights because yeah. they had so much stuff going on. Really hard, everything, Every everything was hard. And uh, I was not good at it. I mean, I connected with these girls and they like liked playing with me and we had fun, but it, I was under-trained and we were punitive. I mean, they did something wrong. They lost their DFSS, DCFS allowance, like shit like that. And so I just thought, God, I, this is, this gotta be this new thing that they're talking about trauma. And, um, this was 17 years ago. And I said, if I could understand what happened, kind of your prevention and correction, maybe we wouldn't be in a place where we're pathologizing these young black women. And so that's why I went back to grad school also because they didn't require GMAT or GRE. (laughs) So um, I went and got my master's at Erickson, which is child development and then Loyola social work. And I never really wanted to do private practice ever or with little kids, but the human development and like the cultural sensitivity that that program taught me, I think is what landed me in a more of a policy and system space like NAMI, but I worked at a psychiatric hospital for a while. Um, NAMI obviously for a long time and, you know, some other stuff, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is where I need to be. I question that a lot as a white Jewish woman from the North side of Chicago, that's had an abundance of privilege. Do I provide the NAMI Chicago's leadership a different lens? And, you know, that's kind of where I sit right now. I think I'm good at my job, but I'm good at my job for my lens. And so we talk a lot about what that transition should or would look like, how for right now we can really focus and lead with equity as like our North Star. Um, and hopefully my ego will knock it in the way and I'll know when it's time to let somebody else have this much fun. So, so the one thing, one of the things you said about your job is that you hope people will come back to the office. Um, this may resonate with other people listening. Are yeah. you, what is it about people coming back to the office that is important to you versus working, vir- working virtually? So, so I will say in all fairness that, especially if my team listens that a lot of people, we've all been going in always like, you know, I, um, but, but not, but I have 60 people. So I would yeah. say about like my leadership is regularly in there. So we, we've had this conversation and there's been some, uh, some coups which is good. I always love the advocacy of my team to like say, no, we disagree with your decision, Alexa James. Um, And so we talked a lot about 
connection. And we talked about mentorship and organic and creativity, and it just can't happen on a Zoom. And I know, and you know, I got really good feedback and articles about how absolutely it can. Um, I just disagree. Our 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 entire mission and value is around healing as community and being seen and heard. And it is not possible for me to be able to walk into an office of a colleague today and say, I know your mom's chemo starting tomorrow mm-hmm. and you lost your dad uh, unexpectedly three weeks ago. How can we help with the kids this week? I can't do that over Zoom because on Zoom, it's business. Nobody wants small talk on Zoom. I mean, we do, but you, you get on, you get off, you barely have time to pee and then your next one happens, you know? And so there's no opportunity to stop and pause. Um, and also like there's, for us, there's heavy shit that happens at NAMI. Mm-hmm. And to be able to get off a call with like, so I won't even say just distressing. The, the people are so sick right now and be able to turn to your supervisor and be like, oh, let's go for a walk, okay. let's move our bodies together. That's good. I, reason. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I totally trust that people are working. Yeah. I, I, I also I, did I, say to them, I am spending $150,000 a year on this bill on this. Uh, right, right. So if we don't need this, I'd need, I'd like to know that now. Right. So, so I, I want to shift gears. We're, we're kind of running low on time yeah. here. And, uh, but, but uh, so you mentioned Alexa, Anthony Bourdain and his death a while ago. Um, and then I was on the, the, I don't know if it was your website or the, or the national NAMI website. Uh, I think it's both, but there's a, there's a prominent phrase that says you are not alone. And that leads me, of course, cause I'm a, we're a big musical family. It leads me to Dear Evan Hansen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then uh, Sean and I were talking about the, the things that um, Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka did this week. And I suspect, or we sus- were suspecting that all of these things affect the landscape of your world. Um, uh, so I guess, A, have you guys spent a lot of time talking about these Olympics because of this um, what happened there. I know it's been in, in the media and also like back to accountability, like, or not accountability as much as like the geeky side of me, like, what are the metrics? Like, what would we hope to see in the world, uh, as a result of these two brave young women doing what mm. they do? I know they're, they're amazing. Okay. So quick story. So I actually, before you, I was on the phone with our PR company and she's a little bit mad at me. I think not mad at me. She's lovely. Cause she came to me the morning that the story about um, Simone came out and she said, you gotta do an op-ed. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I said, people magazine will like do a great cover on this. And like, it, you know, and the, it feels, it's so amazing. And she is so amazing. And the conversations that have happened because of it, a lot of great stuff on social media and like young women knowing that like perfection is not that you know, all of these things It's so important, but it's not where NAMI shines where NAMI shines is trying to unpack much more complicated issues that need like our everyday language to convey. Um, and she was like, but everyone's talking about you. It's really your time. And I was like, I just don't, I, I don't think it has to be NAMI's time. I don't think we have to expose this in order to like get our name out there. Right. So it's, so the, you are not alone thing bothers me because the truth is if anyone has ever felt dark, you feel alone. It doesn't matter if you are surrounded 
you feel alone. And uh, you're not because other people have that same experience. You're not because mm-hmm. once you start to unpack it, hope hope finds itself again. And that's what's lost when you feel alone. Because we know intellectually we're not, right? I know, Sean, if I were in terrible crisis and I picked up the phone and called you, you would sit on that phone with me. Like I, I have a network, like I have, people will show up for each other, no matter how far away you are, what relationship you have. When hope is lost, that's the danger. We're actually starting to, from a metrics perspective, we're trying to figure out from a quality assessment on our helpline, how are we measuring our effectiveness? And we're starting to measure hope, actually, hopefulness from when we get on the phone with somebody to when we follow up, to when we end the call, to when we keep engaging with them. Because that to me is the scariest part of the disease. That's the scariest part of, of mental health going away is when there's no hope. When Simone Biles stands up and says, I can't do this because, or I don't want to do this because I know it'll interfere with me. She has not lost hope. She feels like she has enough of her constitution is there to have that self-efficacy to say, I can't do this right now. Mm-hmm. That's, she's still in that really healthy place, probably because of everything around her and her own, you know, opportunities for wellness. So what I think that the, what this is lending itself to and Anthony Wardain and all of this, all of this stuff is there are a lot of very powerful people who have huge platforms who are using it to bring people together and share an experience that a lot of us feel. And a lot of people don't feel relatable to them. It's and, interesting. Yeah. Right? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, that's that's it. So that's that's where we we feel like congratulatory, but also like that's not that doesn't mean that we that we're all good, right? Yeah, for sure. Right. right. Um, I, I have I found myself thinking about that you are not alone thing and what the what the value in that was. I was taking that or have been taking that to to be the cognitive response to a non-cognitive feeling, right? So of course, the, 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 darker, the darker the place we're in, the more we feel alone. And the only way to combat that is to be reminded that you're not, right? Maybe not the only way, but one of the ways we can combat that is sure. cognitively to be reminded and to see, you know, not, certainly not to go on social media, but to see that, that um, there is help or there are others like you. I, maybe I misread that, but no, I mean, listen, I'm not like, I don't want to show them yet. And this is not like, this is a thing. Um, I guess to me, it just puts a bad taste in my mouth because what I know about depression to be true is that you don't, you're, you don't pour reality testing with depression. You're not like delusional or psychotic necessarily, but depression does lie to you. When you're depressed, you pull from every negative memory. You can get a weird text message back and be like rejected for it. You know, Mm -hmm. so, so I, I don't feel like, connecting a cognitive message like that is a game changer when somebody's already in a space where they don't feel valued, they feel better off, like not bothering people, they feel like a burden. So I think there just needs to be more around that message that like, you may feel alone. This is a moment. This is a fucking moment. This will not last forever. And we need to get you to a point where you can see where you can see the light. Because if you don't, when you return to this place, you won't remember that you get out of it. You can't really put that on a bumper sticker though. Yeah. 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 Well, and so uh, I have to ask, um, I love this notion of measuring hope, especially sort of Mm -hmm. as a 
you know, a, a formative measure and then, or, you know, at the outset and then to see if you've had some impact on hope. What do you, what do you do to, to assess hope? There, you know, I don't know all of the questions that they're asking, um, but we ask it in a few different ways. We always try to not be deficit-based, but we also try to provide psychological safety. For example, Chris, if you were calling and you were like, I'm done, I just, I got nothing left. That my first question wouldn't be like, well, what's good in your life? You know, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right? But what we try to do is actually through, through conversations, through meeting people where they're at, find out what their system actually looks like and then try to bring them into that fold. So what does it feel like when your mom calls? Well, it's annoying, she's overbearing. Sounds like she really cares about you. She just doesn't have the right words. Yeah, I guess that's right, right? So it's really about like getting them to a place where we're, we're at their same level and we're able to kind of dose in what's actually happening and the actual love that they have. And if they don't have community, which is not unusual, we, we serve as that purpose. Um, and oftentimes when they get off the phone, they're like, okay, okay, I can do this. And we make a really quick plan. So what is it going to look like in five minutes? All right. We're going to call back in 15. We're going to send over some like Uber eats and chat while you have your dinner. So it's just like actually doing the work that makes people feel seen and heard. I think that's what brings hope back. I love this, that is a, this is such a, a bad question, but uh, oh, you know, in, in, in measuring hopefulness or hope, do you use that with potential funders? in foundations and say, here are the metrics, here's how, here's the impact that we're having. And how do they react to that? Yeah, we, we hope to, I mean, that's what we're building. Cause the metrics that we have been using have really been cost savings for the city and the state. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, if this is interesting at all, yeah. the, the, as I mentioned, the acuity is getting higher. So our crisis calls are getting much higher. Mm -hmm. Historically, we would just be like, Oh, you mentioned suicide. Oh, you mentioned hopefulness. We're calling the police. They're coming to your house. They're taking you to the hospital, which is really traumatizing. Most of the time people go to the hospital, get released because they don't actually meet the criteria to be, mm -hmm. to stay there. Mm -hmm. Of like the 60 calls, for example, that we had in a week, only four of them had any police engagement. Um, we are Ubering, we are safety planning, we are diverting, we are getting in touch immediately with like their clinical team. We are diverting like that really traumatizing experience and staying with them for that whole time. Every time there's that type of interaction with first responders, it's incredibly expensive and it's incredibly expensive too for the hospital. So that's typically We've been showing ROI that way, mm -hmm. but we can't, but the reason the hope thing came up is because how do you measure like reduction of trauma? Right. How do you measure, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, we, I mean, if we had more time, Sean and I, uh, to hell with the listeners, we would go deep into the metrics yeah. here. Uh, I like, I have so many questions that like repeat callers and how well you track callers, maybe another yeah. time. If no, we, we would love to. I, I was dating a guy who does like a lot of AI CRM stuff and he's like all into this. I'm like, you just, just go. Ask. <laughs> but uh, really our helpline is like a litmus test for the, for the city. You yeah, know, it's such it. a diverse, it, it's, the, it's such interesting. And, and, and um, the way that we note take is pretty standardized. So now being able to dig into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We also had our staff start to rate themselves after a call. So we look at that as a measure as well. How do you feel after that call? And what we've noticed because uh, we're in crisis work is that we're actually really good with the really intense crisis calls because that's where we like to sit in and that kind of camp. Mm. What, where we get like where we're the most like uh, and depleted 
are the calls where there's like, it's just really challenging to have good customer service, like just really difficult. Mm. Yeah. So you, so you also assign like an acuity rating to each call. That's how you disaggregate that. We do that, but we also have like Alexa James would get off that call and be like, how do I feel one to five? Yeah. Right. Right. Mm. Well, Sean, should we, um, should we, should we put Alexa through the, the, the four standard questions that we ask people? I was going to ask, this is like Renee Brown. Does she do this? Oh no. I, I thought we were just borrowing from, uh, the actor studio. Well, I don't know what your questions are. Okay. Oh my God. I hope we didn't over borrow. Well, we've asked them a number of times. So here we go. Okay. okay. So same idea, I think. Um, just, you know, off, off the top of your head. Uh, what do you wish you could have told your 10 year old self? <sighs> Relationships don't have to, loved isn't painful. Awesome. Which, uh, was the most formative year of your life? 35. See, I don't, see, the problem with this process is I don't get to ask. Wait, you're quite, who, wait, who designed this? The questions are the questions you did. I know, but I want to know it. what happened. In, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I met you, Chris. I met you. <laughs> okay, onward. Uh, let's see. What do you hope people will say about you at your wake? And I made them feel seen and heard. I thought I'm a Jew, although I'm rejecting that. I want to wake because I think it's fun. Right. You want to, it's a celebration, it's a right? Celebration. And like, I always wanted to know what it would be like to have my makeup done, you know, deceased, you know, like, is that a dark okay, thought? That's a, that's a dark thought. Yeah. That, I think we can all agree that that's, that's a little weird. No, I'm uh, Sean, you, do you want to address Alexa's issues, which I, I, I'm kind of flabbergasted. So I, I want my makeup done. I, I'm looking forward to have my makeup done too. When I, no, I'm going to get cremated. So yeah, you know there'll too. be no makeup. Same, same. Be no, and I'm not calling it awake either. I'm calling it a potty and I'm not a Jew. So <laughs> a potty. A we potty. Have, I hope we it can have a potty. Post accent, by the way, develop, because this is new to me. Uh, really? Yeah. It hasn't come up in any of our discussions. When when it is uh, uh, the um, when there is a, a lot of trees in a space, what is that called? A forest. Oh, I think you say forest. Oh no! I feel no. like that's what no. Is if that? you wanted that's me like to say York it was accent. a pack, it's like a pack. But I wasn't going to give you that. I was just going to call it a forest for the woods. Well, yeah, you know, we called it the woods when I was growing up. <laughs> and you want to go to the too. woods? We used to play in the woods all the time. It was a blast. <laughs> Alexa, if you listen to like the first one or two episodes of this podcast, uh, Sean does the introduction and he describes, he, he, he's like, welcome to if you've come this far. And <laughs> <laughs> and you it's like the two of you have never heard anybody talk. No, no, I know. It's crazy. How did we Wait, move was, from Alexa's issues to your issues all of a sudden? I, exactly. She was yeah. talking about makeup. Uh, so that's only three questions, right? There's one more. We got off yeah. track like yes. never before. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, this is easy. Well, maybe not. Do you have a mantra in life or even a mantra these days? Leave it better. Leave it better. Amen. Fucking amen. I love that. Uh, well, I think you're doing that, Alexa. Yeah, for sure. I really do. 
It's such important work. You guys are the best. Can we go on the road? Oh, Let's do it. <laughs> we love we love when you come hang out with us. I love hanging out with you guys so much. But for real, for real. So like, yeah. Where is Chris? Where are you in, in the country? I'm in Chicago. You are. That's what I thought. Okay. Yep. Okay. He lives right by Half Acre. We're trying to get them to be a sponsor, but he's he's. You know where that is? Happen. Are you in the I city? Live, I live, I'm in Lincoln Square. Oh yeah. I live yeah. in what's called Bowmanville. So my kids used to go to Rogers Park. I, I'm in Bowmanville. Where are you in Bowmanville? <laughs> I'm on Berwyn. I'm on Somerdale. Shut up. What's your address? Are you by Jackie Kaplan Perkins? I know Jackie so well. She's one of our great friends. <laughs> I'm right across the street. Freaks. Shut up. Yeah. Check it she, out. Are you she lives two doors down. I'm, I'm Berwyn and Oakley. Oh my God. So are you coming to the Bowmanville little fiesta on the 28th? Cause we have a bluegrass band. Uh, my neighbor's right next door and across the street and our banjo picker lives down the street. So we're going to play some bluegrass in a, in a few weeks. I'll see you there. Wait, hold on. Stop the show. Where do your kids go to school? Well, now my older daughter is at uh, Von Steuben. She'll, she'll okay. be a junior. And then my, we moved my younger daughter who will be in seventh grade. We moved her down to FXW. Uh, oh, with the mayor's child. Yes. She met the mayor's child, which is how we met Lori and Lori's wife. Um, they were in an, a play together. Uh, and that's part of the reason. I mean, I don't really follow friends? the mayorship. And Viv? Uh, they, yeah, they are friends. I mean, they're, they're, she, Vivian's a, a year older than May. Okay. Um, but, uh, and of course, there wasn't, they weren't at school that much this year. They right, weren't right, there at right, the same time. Right. So, but uh, so wait, yeah. are you guys going to be friends now? Wait, this I'm is amazing. Jealous. You know, I I'm went into Lori's former detail last year and, and John O'Malley, who's now the deputy mayor of public safety. And we trained FSW teachers about like how to manage, they were like how to manage because you have a special kid in your school. And they were so serious. I got up and I was like, so that was traumatizing. And her, the head of her detail was like, okay, rainbows and fucking sunshine coming out of Alexa. <laughs> but like, I, yeah, we did. But Jackie is, I became friends with her through Lori. Through okay. The there you go. Sure. Yeah, no, uh, we we uh, we find ourselves in the Jackie's backyard to to to, to have drinks on a reasonable. Oh yeah, frequency. do you ever go in the treehouse? Because there's some special stuff up there. Well, I, we went over there for David's 21st birthday, uh-uh. um, and David wanted me to shotgun a beer, which I wasn't able to do when I was fucking 20. So, what, what <laughs> um, but I've never been in the treehouse, and I know the the other boys who built that treehouse with with him, and and the treehouse always smells exactly how you would expect it to smell. Like it's yeah. there's a little weed smoking going on up there a little bit Sean. oh my god well we'll have to see so my kids go to rogers park montessori what they do yes i was on the board there for, for six years when did you leave the board i hired ben i was on the search I committee love principal ben. Ben. yeah i just said we had my wife and i had lunch with ben at half acre john's feeling left ago. out wait are john's we keeping this on out. are we keeping this on the podcast because <laughs> we got this. to no no no. you cannot <laughs> i cut love this. Ben. They you were cannot so cut to us during our divorce like so good to us yeah we loved Um, we loved Montessori and the reason we left was uh it was more for you know the there is a little bit of Catholic left in me but also at FXW they do a really neat job of of sort of introducing comparative religion which I always Mm -hmm. said if I could go back to school I would scrap engineering and do that um but um that's why we moved but we'll we let's let's we should yes yeah, Sean, you're welcome to to to, oh, sure. to yeah. helicopter yeah, in. Me. I'm not yeah. out of the neighborhood. Yeah. We would love the black party here is killer. Yeah. When is it? Well, so 
there is the Bowmanville party, and then there's the Summerdale uh, Black Party as well. We'll probably try to play music there too. But um, mm-hmm. what do I think the Bowmanville thing is up in the green space, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So come on out, Sean. What's the date? Twenty eighth. Twenty eighth. Be in California. Oh, I, life is hard for you. Oh my God, no, I'll totally have to. That's this is so great. Is your old? What's your oldest? Is oldest daughter's name? That's Anna and May. Does Anna want to babysit? She totally does. She's taking her CPR right now. Amazing. She loves kids. She's awesome. She was going to go to Spain to nanny for a former nanny of hers who has two kids, including one with some special needs. So she would love to. She's a good this kid. This is the best uh, Alexa day. Alexa got a baby. I want to go back and say the best day ever today. <laughs> Wait, Alexa, why do you tell people that you live in Lincoln Square? Because we're not really Because nobody, Square. I know, because people are like, what's boom and bill? And I'm yeah, like, right. Right. So you either got to pick Andersonville or Lincoln Square to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I see you. I, we're, I right, we're right. Wait. So Oakley, wait, which one's Oakley? It's like, so, um, you know, the, the on the corner, like when, when, when Bowmanville merges and it's yes. that yellow, like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That is not my house. <laughs> it's on the other side. But that's like in Ireland. You are, if you guys are from Ireland, when they give you directions, they're like, you want to go there, but you don't, but you don't want that, you know? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm the blue house I'm on Berwyn. So yeah, like Oakley's like right, like one block before Foster, basically. Right on. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. I'm wondering how many people are still listening. <laughs> I, I'm fascinated. Well, so. I'm bummed now that I didn't pour a drink because I would stay out. Although I, I know. Like, yeah, right. I mean, I, I'm going out. So I'm going to celebrate this awesome day uh, with my new neighbor. Uh, or thinking about I'll raise a glass to my new neighbor. See, this is why you guys, I just want to note, you're probably going to cut this part, but look what happened when we realized we were 700 feet away from each other. Right. Sean no longer mattered. We only were excited. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why we need to be together. That's right. That started right. out when you were loving, it started out, you were loving me and now I don't even I matter. Know. Thank you. <laughs> then you started talking special time. and then we started realized that you didn't live no, by Sean, us. You guys are the best. Right. We adore you. Well, this was amazing. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, for no, thanks, thanks for Alexa, making time. Um, good luck to your sister. I hope she yes. gets better soon and uh, enjoy that uh, little niece of yours. I sure will. I sure thanks will. for hanging. We'll talk Bye, you guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. 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 This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out at menliving.org.